this episode of the Seraphic Saturday podcast, along with the November 8th Season S presentation, Still Here, is dedicated to the memory of Ruth and Marvin Sackner. Ruth and Marvin were passionate supporters of the arts and gave their generous friendship to Seraphic Fire from the very beginning. This is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. The Seraphic Saturday podcast is produced by Alexis Ame, engineered by Paul Radoy, and hosted by Patrick Dupre Quigley. My name is Thomas McCarger, and this is a Seraphic Fire media production. Hi, and welcome to the Seraphic Saturday podcast. My name is Rhett Del Campo. I am the executive director of Seraphic Fire, filling in for Patrick Quigley, who is busy preparing for the launch of Season S. I am the host for today's podcast, in which I will speak with a few of our artists from our Season S premiere program, Still Here, this broadcast tomorrow, November 8th, 2020, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Tickets and passes for Season S are still available on our website at seraphicfire.org. Season S was born out of necessity as a way for Seraphic Fire to continue to inspire and connect our audiences through music. Tomorrow, after months of planning, we are very proud to present something we think is innovative, creative, and responds to the current situation both musically and emotionally. Season S contains six multimedia concert programs that incorporate stunning visuals, poetry, storytelling with music ranging from the 9th century to brand new compositions. We think you will find that the programs will not only connect us to the present, but also inspire hope for our collective future. The November 2020 program was created by our fantastic artistic staff, along with 13 singers, an organist, and a lutist who recorded and edited remotely from the UK to Los Angeles. But let's hear directly from two of our singers, soprano Sarah Moyer and bass John Buffett. Sarah, John, and I spoke both before and after the recording process, and here is what they had to say about this new way of creating vocal collaborations. Sarah and John, thank you for joining us. My first question is, and I'll ask you first, Sarah, how has your singing life changed since the pandemic began? Since the pandemic began, nearly all of my work, which was scheduled through the summer of 2021, was canceled with no foreseeable reschedulings due to the uncertainty of when it would end. This year was going to be huge for me, with several exciting symphony performances and an opera, as well as ensemble work in many professional choirs. 
At the beginning of the pandemic, because we lost all our work, I wasn't in the mood to make music. Perhaps it was my own way of grieving. This summer, I was fortunate though to have been hired to perform Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915 virtually and to have recorded 28 music videos in a super small quarantined ensemble, as well as create a couple of virtual performances of Tin Pan Alley music accompanied by myself on the ukulele. A friend also came over one afternoon and we drank lots and lots of beer and sang Mozart canzonettas in the backyard. And it was so much fun singing with another human. I especially love your Tin Pan Alley videos, Sarah. If you haven't checked those out on, I believe, Instagram, I highly encourage you to go to either Instagram or Facebook and look for Sarah Moyer's Tin Pan Alley videos. They're quite amusing. John, same question to you. How has your singing life changed since the pandemic began? My singing life is completely different than before the pandemic. I can still practice on my own, but one of the reasons I sing for my career is that I love the collaborative aspect, and that is completely lost now. Not knowing when you can perform in public again makes practicing a challenge. I went from singing a concert basically every weekend in big halls and churches to essentially serenading my neighbors and wife through the walls of our apartment every day. Thank you, John. And I'll stay with you. Tell me about the challenges of socially distanced choral music. The biggest challenge of socially distanced choral music is the delay with technology. An integral part of choral music is the spontaneity and making music with others. That is virtually lost in all of this, uh, pun intended. John, I appreciate a good pun more than anybody else. <laughs> Tossing this over to Sarah, same question. What are the challenges of socially distanced choral music for you? Timing is so essential in group singing. It's such an important aspect that it can't really be taught, but more just learned through experience. Breathing, landing on hard consonants, singing through voiced consonants, those are all organic human things that you depend on others doing simultaneously when you're in the same room. The same could probably be accomplished through socially distanced music, but it takes 10 times the effort and concentration. A really important element to keep in mind when you're not performing live with each other, that energy, that communication that happens between artists is something that can easily get lost. And what I think makes it all the more impressive what you and all of the other artists are creating for this first season S program. And Sarah, what are your expectations for the new Seraphic Fire season S? I expect that preparing for these concerts will be a learning curve at first for many of us, as we are all acoustically trained artists, and most of us have never had to worry about being our own sound engineers. But I do think after each artist experiences their first concert for the season, it'll be like riding a bike, and recording for Season S will become second nature. I also expect that Season S will expand our audience on a national and international level, since it's easily accessed from the comfort of your own home. There is essentially no way a concert can sell out this year, so invite all your friends. The more, the merrier. And I can appreciate that challenge that you have becoming your own sound engineer. Some people may already know this, but I helped record some of the percussion tracks, and I can say how difficult and weird it is to be making music this way, listening to all of you wonderful singers through my headphones and trying to record some sleigh bells and tambourines and cratales. 
It's quite interesting. How about you, John? Same question. What are your expectations for the new Seraphic Fire Season S? I have no real expectations on what Seraphic Fire's Season S will be, but I am excited. I know the music making will be at the absolute highest caliber, and they are really putting resources into making and delivering art to all of us who need it so much. Patrick and everyone at Seraphic Fire are doing everything to make this season innovative and memorable. It may be different, but we can expect the first-class music making that we have all grown accustomed to. It really is an organizational-wide group effort that I'm seeing from the artists, the staff, even board members, and even patrons who have participated in focus groups to give us good information on what we need to do throughout the season to stay engaged. And I'm really grateful for everyone's input and um, spirit of experimentation. John, what are you looking forward to in the November program? With the November program, I'm looking forward to having something to work on. Finding direction and motivation during this time is hard for us all. I'm very excited to have a new challenge. It helps that I will get to make music with my musical family again, even if we are not in the same room. I can appreciate how difficult it is to stay motivated as an artist and keep at the top of your artistic game. And bravo to you and all of those who are continuing to do that from your own homes. And Sarah, how about you? Even though I won't be making music with my colleagues in person, I look forward to hearing their beautiful voices and collaborating with them from afar. I really miss them, and it'll just be really nice to hear them. Sarah, I, I know I speak for many others. I cannot wait for that moment when we are all on stage again together and able to welcome our audiences. I know that will be a really, really special moment. Sarah and John, I will check back with you as this project continues and once your input is complete and hear a little bit about your post-recording experience. Next, I spoke with our artistic director, Patrick Quigley, about the formation of Season S, the recording process, and what exactly our audiences will experience this season. So Patrick, what was the artistic process in creating Season S? Well, Season S took about three months to put together. We began in the middle of June uh, considering what the limits might be on our art making for the next year. And in the middle of June, uh, none of us were really able to leave our house. Florida was in the middle of its own battle with the pandemic. And so we decided that we would see what we could do with everyone performing and recording from where they live, which adds a set of of its own uh, complications, but also gave us a framework for how we came together to put this together. So a lot of what we did when we were thinking about season S is thinking about things that we could perform that were accomplishable during a period of isolation, but also uh, had some sort of relevance to what we're going through right now. And um, this led to a lot of reading uh, and research on the part of the artistic staff of Ceramic Fire. And we found a lot of things. We found the music upon which we think of as the basis for Western classical music, which is Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant actually began after a plague in the first millennia of the common era. And when Europe reached the next great 
plague, which was hundreds of years later in the middle of the 14th century, Gregorian chant had reached to the level of of artistry in the way that it was being composed by actual named composers. One that we can think of in particular is Hildegard of Bingen and the beginning of multi-layered polyphony. So more than one voice doing different things at different times, creating sort of a whole. And so looking at that history, we decided to take uh, the beginning of the plague in the 14th century as our departure point and see what happened to music then. Did it disappear like the music that was prior to the Justinian plague or did it last? And one of the things that we found is that the second time that Western Europe dealt with one of these gigantic mortality events is that music in fact did survive and survived because of the written word and the ability for composers to actually write down their music on paper before written music and the system that we use to write down music. Music was basically an oral tradition, but oral traditions are really hard to keep going during a mass disease event because sometimes the keepers of that tradition are isolated or uh, or are affected quite greatly by these diseases. And so we looked to see what, what was the difference this time. And it was music notation. And so we took music notation and looked through to find if there were any composers who had survived the plague. And we found that for the end of the medieval period, throughout the entire European Renaissance, moving into the Baroque period, almost all of the composers that we think of had some sort of brush with either the Black Death or malaria or influenza and their music survived as did they. And so that's why we titled this season Vita Brevis Ars Longa, uh, Life is Short, But Art is Long. And I think that that's, that's the perspective that we're taking this year as we're planning our programs, which is we're putting out music that has stood the test of time and disease. And I think that that in and of itself can give hope, not only to the musicians in the ensemble, but also to the people who are listening to our performances. And I have to say, from my perspective, I remember our first meeting back in June when we decided to try to reinvent ourselves for the coming season. And we all walked away from that meeting kind of wide-eyed and freaked out, realizing, wow, we are going to have to totally reinvent the wheel. And to go from there to where we are now has been a really fascinating process to see and learn new technologies the artists have adapted so so quickly. And it's all been very impressive and cool to watch. Patrick, what can you tell us about this first program, still here, that is premiering in November? One of the things that makes our November program so different from what people have heard from us in the past is that every bit of music was recorded and produced in isolation. As I think most of our listeners know, our membership comes from across the country and from all over the world. Uh, For this program, uh, we have people as far away as Los Angeles, Seattle, and the UK. So uh, we're bridging quite large distances. And so each one of these people recorded either in their bathrooms 
under tables, in pillow forts, all sorts of different ways in order to isolate their voice, which was then sent to our engineer who lives in Indiana. And he and I have been putting together those very different isolated pieces of music into a unified whole. The theme, the musical theme of the program is stillness and survival. We used history as our guide for this. And so We've been looking at the music of such masters as Dufay and Monteverdi, John Dowland, Palestrina, and how their lives were affected by pandemic disease and the resilience that they showed during that time and the resilience of their music over the centuries. I like that word, Patrick, resilience. I think it really speaks to everything that the artists are displaying impressively and what this organization is showing the ability to adapt and recreate and survive. So resilient is a, a theme for this season as well, I think. And before my next question, Patrick, a little trivia for our listeners. One person on this podcast today is not a singer. And if you can guess it, it is me because our Producer Alexis M.A. keeps telling me to watch my vocal fry, a term I just learned. Anyway, Patrick, the third question I have for you, what was the most challenging aspect of this project? Oh, well, I, I, mean, I think there were so many challenging aspects of this project, not the least of which is never having done anything like this before. The distance was certainly the biggest challenge and overcoming the limitations that each of us had from both a technological and musical standpoint in our own homes. As musicians, we're often particularly acoustic musicians, so almost all of classical music and also some folk and other traditions don't really have microphones as part of their tradition. And so translating our music through a microphone rather than translating it directly to our audience has been the biggest challenge that we've overcome during this time period. And it's also been the most fun thing to do because when we do overcome it, and perhaps I think you might be playing a little bit of a sample of this later on, but when we do overcome it, it it's amazing just how interesting and how all-encompassing this music is. Maybe, maybe we can play a little clip for our podcast audiences right now. Let's hear a bit of Siku Cervus, recorded in October 2020 by the artists of Seraphic Fire in Isolation.
I'm still really impressed by how well the musical elements of these pieces come through, even recorded remotely in isolation. It's, to me, very, very impressive and music to my ears, so to speak. Patrick, tell us a little bit about this piece and why you chose it for this project. Sigurd Shervus uh, is one of those incredible pieces of polyphony that is so exquisitely crafted that it has been sung by, I think, every member of our ensemble hundreds, if not thousands of times in, in different situations. We chose it specifically for this program for a few reasons. One is that Palestrina himself was born during a very large plague outbreak. He would have been akin to a child that was born in August, excuse me, in April of 2020. And yet he went on to have an incredible career and write some unbelievably affecting music. Uh, Plague was a constant part of his life as he made his music. And the piece itself um, is actually the first piece that I listened to while looking at music after the pandemic happened. It took me maybe six or seven weeks to be able to, to listen to music and look at the score at the same time after I, like, so many of my colleagues was sent home from a gig that I was on and listening to it and just the simplicity of its harmonies and the very direct textual message, like the deer longs for water, so longs my soul after you. I felt like both the music and the text really spoke to what we were going through at the time, this this longing for human connection. And you can feel that longing at every moment in the piece. Uh, Siku Cervos is written to musically illustrate the idea of a stream sort of that flows and meanders, never stopping, always moving, always moving forward, sometimes tumbling down rocks, sometimes going down waterfalls, sometimes coming to smooth parts, but always moving. And I think that it represents a lot of what we're doing. I mean, we're trying to keep moving and to keep creating and to keep our art form alive during this time. And like so many artists, we, we, we want to be able to create art that is relevant for now. And I can't think of a piece that is more relevant than a piece by Palestrina who lived through so much of uh, the same thing that we are living through, except without the benefits of running water, electricity, germ theory, to name only three things. Uh, so it's an incredible piece of music. And I want to thank my colleagues who have put in so much time onto this piece because it sounds exquisite. I like what you said, Patrick, about this piece being familiar. And I'm sure it made it a lot easier when these artists are working on something that they're so familiar with. I'm sure that um, was quite helpful as this learning curve was steep. And also, I like, Patrick, what you said, never stopping. It's important to keep moving, taking the next step. So I like that message as well that you're passing through. Thank you, Patrick, for joining us on this podcast today, and especially for letting me sit in your chair and play host. It's quite fun. Thank you. So we heard from Sarah and John prior to their recording experience. And now I am speaking with them after the completion of the process to get their reactions. So let's hear from them. John, tell us a little bit about this process. How was it for you? This recording process was a new challenge. 
Singers hardly ever perform by themselves. Whether we are singing with a choir, or an orchestra, or in a solo recital with a pianist, we always have at least someone who we are communicating with using both our eyes and our ears. In this case, we were essentially blind. We had a guide track, and in some cases, a recording of a colleague that we sang along to. But we had been training our whole lives for the live interactions, so we had to learn a whole new skill set. And Sarah, what about you and your fortress of blankets? It was pretty simple once I got used to it. I mostly had a hard time keeping quiet when I wasn't singing, but that's even the case during a live recording session. Recording at home had its ups and downs. <laughs> Let's be real, wearing my PJs while recording was pretty awesome, but recording with no acoustic was not so fun, even though it was necessary. I also live in a very grassy neighborhood, so I was constantly being interrupted by lawnmowers. I learned a lot about recording myself though, and I'm happy I was able to experience it for the first time with Seraphic Fire, who has been super supportive and helpful as everyone is learning this art form. Well, it certainly sounds like there was some comfort in this process, being that you could be in your PJs and socks. Also, I challenge anyone to try to record something and get their room as silent as possible. It'll help you realize just how noisy our world is. Sarah, can you explain for our audiences how Seraphic Fire tackled this process? So a small number of artists were assigned to each piece to be the leaders and to set the tone, the mood, and the style for the rest of the group. That small group sang to a click track. Once that click track was made, our sound engineer, Jamie, combined those voices and sent the rest of the choir a rough copy of their performance for the rest of us to record on top of. It was helpful because unlike normal virtual choir projects, we were able to blend and match the tones of our colleagues, mimic cutoffs, and uh, breathe with each other. Very similar to a real collaboration. And I can only imagine how musically constricting it can feel when you're recording alone to a click track. All the more impressive, I feel. So, John, now that this process is complete, what piece are you most looking forward to sharing with the Seraphic Fire audience? I think I'm most excited for people to hear the men's chant, Stella Celi. This piece probably sounds the most simple on the entire program, but... At least for me, this was by far the most challenging to record. There was nowhere to hide, yet somehow we all sang it the same way. Sarah, what about you? What piece? It's so hard to choose. They're all so great. But uh, perhaps the poor people's complaint. Sarah Gutenberg sounds awesome, and I love the folky vibe we've got going on in the rest of the choir. Thank you, Sarah and John, for joining us to give us some of your perspective. It's always a pleasure working with you. By the way, everyone present at the live performance on November 8th will have the opportunity to get their questions answered by Patrick Quigley and several artists in a live Q&A that I will be hosting immediately following the conclusion of the performance. A special thank you to our production team for the November program still here. Jamie Tagg, our audio engineer at Indiana University, was our point person in making this incredible CD-worthy audio. Enrico Lagasca, our videographer who created the engaging visuals accompanying our singers. 
and the wonderful Alexis Eme, our head of production, who coordinated the audio and video with our singers and staff. Of course, I should thank Patrick Quigley, executive producer who compiled this thoughtful program for our audience and worked diligently in the mixing process to capture our signature seraphic fire sound. Last but not least, our thanks to Paul Rudoy, the always delightful Seraphic Saturday podcast engineer. To find out more about Season S and our upcoming performances, as always, visit our website, seraphicfire.org. Next month on Seraphic Saturday, we will have a preview of one of our favorite annual programs, A Seraphic Fire Christmas, which will be hosted by associate conductor James Bass. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for joining us. I am Rhett Del Campo, and this is the Seraphic Saturday Podcast. This episode of the Seraphic Saturday Podcast was made possible by Bruce and Martha Clinton and the Clinton Family Fund. The Seraphic Saturday Podcast is produced by Alexis Ame, engineered by Paul Radoy, and hosted by Patrick Dupre Quigley. Our fact checker is Sarah Gutenberg. Laura Shan provides marketing and PR support for the podcast, and the Seraphic Fire staff is led by Executive Director Rhett Del Campo. The entire Seraphic Fire family is grateful for the support we receive from our home audiences in South Florida, including the Coral Gables, Miami, Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, and Naples communities, as well as from our individual, foundation, and municipal sponsors. Please patronize our corporate sponsors, Williamson Automotive, Marriott Hotels, and Enterprise Rent-A-Car, who continue to underwrite great art and youth education programs. My name is Thomas McCarger, and this is a Seraphic Fire Media Production. <laughs>